Money. It influences almost everything a human in a civilization does. It facilitates the transfer of goods and services within a society, and without it, the production of this great nation and the incredible growth throughout the world would not be possible. But what is money? The national debt is now $28 trillion. Why is the government allowed to run at such a deficit? Will this money ever have to get paid off? The answer is no. As modern monetary theory puts it, the government is the sole monopolist of money issuance and therefore does not operate like a normal household or business. When you have the world reserve power to print the money your debt is issued in, then you really have no debt at all. However, the trick is that even though the Constitution gives the government the sole power to issue money, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 allowed the Federal Reserve, a non-federal, private entity, separate from the government, run by private shareholders, to have a monopoly over the issuance of money within the United States. The truth is, the war between government and privately run central bank goes all the way back to colonial times, a history that is never taught in public schools but is an instrumental part in understanding what money truly is. When money is solely used to facilitate the transfer of goods and services within a society, then money can be a godsend technology. But when it is manipulated by a small group of people, history shows it corrupts the market as a whole and leads to inflation. Inflation is the increase of nominal prices which makes your purchasing power decrease over time. Currently, the Federal Reserve sets 2% as a healthy target for inflation. We have been sold that a little inflation is a good thing for the economy, and without it, we would experience horrifying deflation or stagflation. The truth is, it is all a scheme in order for the public to think it's okay to see rising prices over time. The scheme is simple. It works as a traditional Ponzi scheme. The top of the pyramid is the central banks, and the first customers of this scheme are the governments and large private charter banks. Then the government and charter banks distribute this newly printed money in a way they deem fit. The people, states, or businesses that receive this new money then decide where to spend or invest it. This money that is invented out of thin air by the top of the pyramid has to go somewhere as we see through the layers of the pyramid. Once this new money finds a home in, say, property, stocks, or basic goods or services, it affects the basic laws of supply and demand. When this equilibrium is affected by the increased units in the system, the business or individual has to raise the prices or find ways to produce the same product in a cheaper way at the same price. However, it really seems like the goal of this scheme is to lock the middle class up from any further growth and make it even harder for lower class individuals to rise within an even faster rising economy. Inflation is a silent death brought about by a thousand economic paper cuts. The Fed claims the current monetary policy helps reverse wealth inequality, but the evidence proves otherwise. For example, in the last 50 years we have seen an incredible increase in nominal prices. 
1964, a car cost $3,500, a house, $20,000, milk, $0.50, bread, $0.22, and gas, $0.30. Now and today, 2021, the median price for a home is conservatively $200,000, gas, $3, bread, $2.50, milk, $3.50, and a brand new car, $35,000. Why has everything gone up in price but we can still survive? Well, because we make more, too. The median income of all families in 1964 was about $6,600. Now, in 2019, it was $65,000. That means that the average American increased their income by 10x over the last 57 years, while the prices for the goods or services they want to buy have increased roughly at the same rate. This means that increasing your wealth does not necessarily mean you can purchase more as your purchasing power is decreasing just as fast as your nominal income is increasing. Even though central banks have seemed like a necessary part of a free capitalist market, it really brings about a monopoly of currency issuance to a few groups of people who which run it. Mayor of New York John Francis Highland from 1918 to 1925 illustrated this point with metaphoric imagery. The real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which like a giant octopus sprawls its slimy legs over our cities, states, and nation. At the head of it is a small group of banking houses. This little coterie runs our government for their own selfish ends. It operates under a self-created screen, seizes our executive officers, legislative bodies, schools, courts, newspapers, and every agency created for public protection. The few people that have controlled money issuance throughout history have done a poor job cultivating equality and instead created a system that benefits a small group while the rest stay stagnant. Author W. Cleon Skousen explains why absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power from any source tends to create an appetite for additional power. It was almost inevitable that the super-rich would one day aspire to control not only their own wealth, but the wealth of the whole world. To achieve this, they were perfectly willing to feed the ambitions of the power-hungry political conspirators who were committed to the overthrow of all existing governments and the establishment of a central worldwide dictatorship. So how did we get to this present day system? How did we give up control of our money issuance to an organization, the Federal Reserve, a private business controlled by a small group of private shareholders? To answer these questions, we have to start all the way back in the Roman Empire, 200 years before Jesus. When Julius Caesar took back control from private entities, the power to issue new money for the Roman Empire, Caesar expanded the money supply of the empire, and with this new plentiful supply of money, he built great public works, like the Colosseum. The people loved Caesar because times were prosperous, but the private entities that were once in control hated him and were one of the contributing factors to his eventual assassination. After Caesar's death, taxes increased, and corruption spread. Eventually, the Romans' empire money supply was reduced by 90%. As a result, the common people lost their lands and their homes. With a lack of confidence in the government, the people refused to accept new money, which was printed by the government, which eventually sent Europe into the Dark Ages. In 1982, 
a report to the Congress of the Commission on the Role of Gold in the Domestic and International Monetary Systems said this about the Roman Empire. At the Christian era, the metallic money of the Roman Empire amounted to $1.8 billion. At the end of the 15th century, it had shrunk to $200 million. During this period, a most extraordinary and baleful change took place in the condition of the world. Population dwindled, and commerce, arts, wealth, and freedom all disappeared. The people were reduced to poverty and misery to the most degraded condition of serfdom and misery. That the Dark Ages was caused by decreasing money and falling prices, and that the recovery, therefore, and the comparative prosperity which followed the discovery of the Americas was due to the increasing supply of precious metals and rising prices will not seem surprising or unreasonable when the notable functions of money are considered. Money is the great instrument of association, the very fiber of social organism, the vitalizing force of industry, and as essentials oxygen is to animal life. Without money, civilization could not have a beginning. With the diminishing supply, it must languish, and unless relieved, finally perish. The money changers were even at work in the time of Jesus, as the phrase money changers in the New Testament referred to the merchants that would corner the market on the then-used currency called a shekel, and which Jews would use to donate to the church. Since the money changers had the shekel market cornered, they would charge very high prices to exchange into these coins, as the Jews had no other choice to accept, as the church would only accept the shekel as payment. The only time Jesus ever used violence was in the cleansing of the temple narrative, where Jesus expelled these prophet-seeking merchants and the money changers from the temple. This story is in all four Gospels of the New Testament. These private entities who had control over what a society used as money were called the money changers, and they were in large control in medieval Europe. The goldsmiths of the time were the first bankers because they would hold people's gold for safekeeping, and the depositors would receive a receipt or note that they could trade for goods and services within the economy. Paper money caught on because it was more convenient to carry around than the alternative heavy gold and silver coins. Eventually, these goldsmiths figured out that only a small fraction of the depositors would come in to demand their gold at any one time. So these goldsmiths started cheating on the system by issuing more receipts than they actually had in reserves. This was the birth of the fractional reserve banking system. And with this invented money receipt, they could loan it out to entities who needed it, but of course charging interest. If everyone had trust in the goldsmith's ability to repay their gold in the future, then they would trust the money receipt being given to them. If enough people in a society agree upon this principle, then it can be used as a medium of exchange, and even invented money, not backed by any reserved gold, could still be used and usually no one would be the wiser. This practice is still used today, as every bank in the United States is allowed to loan out 10 times the amount of money they actually have in assets. Why do you think the bank buildings are always the largest in town? After these goldsmiths in ancient Europe discovered they had control over most of the wealth in the economy, they could make extra profits on betting on the market's outlook. 
Since they controlled the money, they could easily make it easier or harder to get loans, which would result in the tightening or expansion of money in the system. This practice gave rise to the boom and bust business cycle we all know today. The bankers know when it is coming because they control the rules the market has to play by. When people cannot take out new loans to cover losses of a previous loan, then they go bankrupt and the bankers collect the collateral most oftentimes property for pennies on the dollar. This leads to the increase of wealth inequality as more and more of the society's ownership is being distributed upon a smaller and smaller group of people. The goldsmiths were not removed from their power to issue money until the rise of King Henry in 1100 AD. He decided to not use paper receipts, but instead a stick, using this tally stick system. It was adopted to avoid the monetary manipulation of the goldsmiths. The stick was cut with notches that showed the history of denomination and was cut in half. One was given to the merchant and one was given to the king, so he had a record of receipts. Everyone at the time was paid their wages in these sticks, and the taxes paid to the government were in these sticks. This crazy use of a stick as currency proves two things about money. One, as long as the participants in an economy agree that a certain item has intrinsic value when exchanged, it can be used as money. Two, demand for this object is high, as everyone within the society has to pay their taxes in this object. This object could really be anything. For example, if you wanted to get your kids to do the chores around the house, and you decide to give them pieces of Monopoly money upon successful completion, they will most likely not care about your Monopoly money and go about whatever they feel like doing. But what happens if you tax your kids at the end of the month? And if they do not pay, then they lose privileges. So if they do not possess enough of your fake Monopoly power to pay the tax that you have imposed, they know they will have something taken away from them. They might try to get around the system by just paying dollars, but if you do not accept that payment and the only way to get the payment you accept is to work for it or to exchange something else of value to get it, then you are in control. This is why we pay taxes every year. It's not to pay for the government spending. It's to make sure we do the work necessary to build or maintain the empire and to take money out of a bloated system. They have a monopoly on money and can invent money whenever they want and at whatever amount they want. Why do you think we never have a problem funding our military? The tally stick system lasted for 700 years and helped build the British Empire. In 1642, the English Civil War allowed the money changers to once again gain control of money issuance. The Bank of England was the first central bank to be invented, giving the power of a private bank to issue the money for a nation out of nothing. It was deceptively named the Bank of England to trick the public in believing that it was a government-run bank. The Bank of England, after acquiring this monopoly, would then use this invented money that they were legally allowed to print and line the pockets of politicians to reinforce the need for a private central bank. As long as the government ensured the power of the private central bank, the bank would guarantee their financial wealth. This brings us to the rise of the American empire. The colonies, when founded, were given the right to issue their own money, and even though this money was no different than current forms of fiat currency used today, only enough was issued to facilitate the transfer of goods and services. When asked how the colonies 
were experiencing such rapid growth. Franklin responded with this quote, That is simple. In the colonies, we issue our own money. It is called colonial scrip. We issue it in proper proportion to the demands of trade and industry to make the products pass easily from producers to the consumers. In this manner, creating for ourselves our own paper money, we control its purchasing power and we have no interest to pay. In early America, the governments had the power to issue money and this was not okay with the growing power of Bank of England and the money changers. They decided to take away the colony's ability to issue their own money, which led to high unemployment and depression. Benjamin Franklin explained it this way in the following quotes. The colonies would gladly borne the little tax on tea and other matters that it had not been that England took away from the colonies their money, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. The inability of the colonists to get power to issue their own money permanently out of the hands of King George III and the international bankers was the prime reason for the Revolutionary War. It was the poverty caused by the bad influence of the English bankers on the Parliament which has caused in the colonies hatred of the English and the Revolutionary War. During the war, the colonies tried to continue to use colonial script. However, funding for the war led to hyperinflation. Before the war, the money supply was 12 million, and after the war, it was 500 million. Shoes sold for $5,000 a pair, and in 1781, after the war was done and won, America, trying to fix its money issues, decided to allow Robert Morris to open his own central bank, called the Bank of North America. The charter for this bank was taken away after four years as economic conditions only worsened for the country. Thomas Jefferson explained his opinion on central banks in this quote in 1802. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, First by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. After the Constitution was written and signed, a new central bank called the First Bank of the United States in 1790 to once again keep America under the grip of a central bank. Just like the Bank of England, the Bank of the United States was named so the public would have the impression that it was a government-run entity, not a private business. After both the Bank of North America and the First Bank of the United States failed, the American government signed another deal, allowing for the Second Bank of the United States to come into existence. After 12 years of continued money manipulation, the American people were fed up and elected President Andrew Jackson in 1828. His sole purpose of his term as president was to remove the grip that the central bankers had on the United States. Jackson, like many others who stood against the money changers, led to an assassination attempt on his life. Luckily though, both pistols used misfired. The battle to remove the central bank was not easy, but blatant arrogance from the chairman of then Second Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, said this, 
Nothing but widespread suffering will produce any effect on Congress. Our only safety is in pursuing a steady course of firm restriction, and I have no doubt that such a course will ultimately lead to restoration of the currency and the recharger of the bank. By 1836, Jackson successfully rooted out all the government entities supporting the bank and removed the central bank's charter. Jackson was the only president to pay off the nation's debt. America was once again freed upon the powers of a central bank. However, this would only last for another 77 years. When asked what his crowning achievement was as president, he answered, I killed the banks. The truth was Jackson cut off the snake's head. But the body was still alive, and the head would once again grow back. The American Civil War in 1861, contrary to belief, was not started solely because of slavery. As Lincoln put it, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. The Civil War was truly brought about by the funding of the South by international bankers. The money changers saw an opportunity to divide and conquer and bring the centralized power of centralized banks back to America. Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany at the time, said this about the factors contributing to the America's Civil War. The division of the United States into the federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial powers of Europe. These bankers were afraid that the United States, if they remained in one block and as one nation, would attain economic and financial independence, which would upset their financial domination over the world. The voice of the Rothschilds prevailed. Therefore, they sent their emissaries into the field to exploit the question of slavery and to open an abyss between the two sections of the Union. Why did Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany, bring up the voice of the Rothschilds? Who are the Rothschilds? The story of money would not be complete without understanding the power of the Rothschild family. The story really begins with the birth of five Rothschilds in the 1700s. These Rothschilds were all trained in the practices of finance and then sent to the main financial centers of Europe to open family branches. The business model for the Rothschilds were simple. One can make more money loaning to governments or kings rather than people. Mayor Armstrong Rothschild put it this way, Let me issue and control a nation's money and I care not who writes the laws. They continued their mass wealth accumulation until one defining moment gave them the control over the financial world by placing them as the wealthiest family in the world. The Battle of Waterloo in 1815 was the defining moment. Nathan Rothschild placed a messenger beside the battle between England and Napoleon. After the battle was decided, the messenger sprinted off to deliver the news. Nathan Rothschild knew the result of the battle one full day before the king himself. With this knowledge, Nathan Rothschild went to the market and knew that if Napoleon had won, it would be detrimental for the English economy. So with a sad face, he looked down and decided to sell everything. And with the Rothschild tenure within the English market being so strong, everyone assumed that Napoleon had won and Rothschild was merely getting out before the news hit the market. 
Little did they know, through other entities controlled by the Rothschilds, they were buying up the discounted assets, knowing the truth that the English had won. This propelled the Rothschilds' dominance over the financial world, and more importantly, the Bank of England. Napoleon, the man who was defeated in the Battle of Waterloo, knew the power held by central bankers even in his time by saying in a quote, When a government is dependent upon bankers for money, they and not the leaders of the government control the situation. Since the hand that gives is above the hand that takes, money has no motherland. Financiers are without patriotism and without decency. Their sole object is gain. In an eerie foreshadowing quote by Nathan Rothschild, he stated this, I care not what puppet is placed upon the throne of England to roll the empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls the Britain's money supply controls the British Empire, and I control the British money supply. The Rothschilds throughout history were not the only family that were a factor leading to the centralized power of money issuance. However, they were surely a large contributing factor on legislation throughout the world for the development and the sustainment of national central banks. After the rise of the most wealthy family in the world by influenced countless governmental acts that progressed the need for a central bank consolidating the nation's economic affairs into the hands of a few. To fund the Union during the Civil War, Lincoln once again brought back the government's power to issue money. Rather than raising the money by opening loans with private banks with high amounts of interest, they issued their own money at no interest. Lincoln put it this way, Changes from state systems to the national system are rapidly taking place, and it is hoped that very soon there will be in the United States no banks of issue not authorized by Congress and no banknote circulation not secured by the government. This is what the money this is what the money changers thought about the greenbacks. An editorial in the London Times said if this mischievous financial policy that has its origin in the North American Republic shall be become endurated down to a fixture, then that government will furnish its own money without cost. It will pay off its debts and be without debt. It will have all the money necessary to carry on its commerce. It will become prosperous without precedent in the history of the world. The brains and the wealth of all countries will go to North America. That government must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe. As Otto von Bismarck explains, the real reason for Lincoln's assassination in 1865 was the power of issuance of money. The death of Lincoln was a disaster for Christendom. There was no man in the United States great enough to wear his boots, and the bankers went anew to grab the riches. I fear the foreign bankers, with their craftiness and torturous tricks, will entirely control the exuberant riches of America and use it to systematically corrupt civilization. With Lincoln out of the way, the bankers wasted no time trying to regain control. When Jackson cut the head off the snake, which was the central privatized bank, he left the body, which was all the private state-run banks. Since these banks controlled most of the gold in the market, they could still collude together to bring about monetary contraction or expansion in a moment's notice. The real reason behind America's use of the gold standard was not to avoid centralized power, it was actually to reinforce it. Think about it. Why do we not do a silver standard? 
Silver is more plentiful than gold, and therefore less manipulated. With gold being such a scarce market, the one who owns the gold owns the market and therefore gets to make the rules. It is essentially the next best thing, other than a central bank. Another tool they get to use when they control all the gold is calling in loans and charging high interest or outright refusing new loans to bring about depression in the economy or loan out many pieces of debt, even if it's not backed by anything, in order to raise the economy. Post-Civil War, America saw an era of depression because of this gold standard. The bankers had control of most of the gold and contracted the circulating money supply from 1866 from $1.8 billion to just under $0.4 billion by 1886. The bankers even went as far to ban silver as fully legal means of tenor, meaning you could not use them because it did not have the stamp of approval by the government. This was passed in 1873 under the Coinage Act. An influential lobbyist for this bill said this about his role. I went to America in the winter of 1872-73, authorized to secure, if I could, the passage of a bill demonetizing silver. It was in the interest of those I represented, the governors of the Bank of England, to have it done. By 1873, gold coins were the only form of coin money. This centralized power that was brought about by a gold standard is articulated in this quote at federalreservehistory.org. In 1884 and 1890, the New York Clearinghouse stopped the chain reaction by pulling the reserves of its member banks and providing credit to institutions beset by runs, effectively acting as a central bank with reserve power greater than that of any European central bank. The site then goes on explaining the greater and greater boom and bust business cycles. The Panic of 1873 was blamed for setting off the economic depression that lasted from 1873 to 1879. This period was called the Great Depression, until the even greater depression of 1893 received that label, which it held until the even greater contraction in the 1930s, now known as the Great Depression. Once President James Garfield was elected, he made this statement in his first weeks as president. Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize the entire system is very easily controlled, one way or another, by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. Within a few weeks of making this statement in 1881, President Garfield was assassinated. When looking at the sinister history of completed and attempted assassinations on the lives of U.S. presidents, it's very interesting that every one of them shared one common idea, that monopoly issuance of money controlled by a small group of powerful people at the top is bad for America. A congressional report in 1913 discovered that the ABA, the Association of Bankers in America, sent out a memo in 1891 perfectly describing the scheme by planning a depression three years in the future. On September 1st, 1894, we will not renew our loans under any consideration. On September 1st, we will demand our money. We will foreclose and become mortgagees in possession. We can take two-thirds of the farms west of the Mississippi and thousands of them east of the Mississippi as well, at our own price. Then the farmers will become tenants, as in England. By 1904, a new plan was formulated to focus the nation on the supposed need for a central bank. 
At this time, J.P. Morgan was becoming one of the top powers in America. As done many times before, the bankers, Morgan alike, planned to crash this economy, and within days, in 1907, banks were on the edge of collapse. Knowing the pain America was about to experience from the non-stop selling of assets and the fading trust in the overall economy, Morgan used this opportunity to ask America for permission to invent his own money out of thin air. They granted his wish, and Morgan used this invented money to pay for goods and services and even sent it out to his local branch offices to loan out at interest. At the time, people were more willing to accept a piece of paper from J.P. Morgan than the federal government, because most people had more trust in Morgan than America to pay its bills. His plan worked, and soon the population regained confidence in money, and citizens stopped hoarding their cash, and the economy was once again healthy in 1908. It helped the economy, but it further consolidated the power to issue money into the hands of fewer and fewer. The Federal Reserve Bank was approved using the Aldridge Act and a sister bill called the Glass-Owen Bill. This all led to the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. The President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt at the time, said this about the international bankers. These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of newspapers and the columns of these papers. To club into submission or drive out of public office officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful corrupt cliques which composed the invisible government. This foreshadowing Roosevelt speaks of in the previous quote explains why legacy media is so corrupt and biased today. Congressman Oscar Calloway put it this way in 1917. In March 1915, the J.P. Morgan interest, the steel, shipbuilding, and powder interest, and their subsidiary organizations got together 12 men high up in the newspaper world and employed them to select the most influential newspapers in the United States, and sufficient number of them to control generally the policy of the daily press. They found it was only necessary to purchase the control of 25 of the greatest papers. An agreement was reached. The policy of the papers were bought to be paid by for the month. An editor was furnished for each paper to properly supervise and edit information regarding the questions of preparedness, militarism, financial policies, and other things of national and international nature considered vital to the interests of the purchasers. When asked about the birth of the Federal Reserve, a congressman from Pennsylvania, Louis T. McFadden, said this in 1932, One of the greatest battles of the preservation of this republic was fought out here in Jackson's day. When the Second Bank of the United States, which was founded upon the same false principles as those which are here exemplified in the Federal Reserve Act, was hurled out of existence. After the downfall of the Second Bank of the United States in 1837, the country was warned against the dangers that might ensue if the predatory interest, after being cast out, should come back in disguise and unite themselves to the executive and through him acquire control of the government. That is what the predatory interest did when they came back in the livery of hypocrisy and under false pretenses obtained the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. An Ohio attorney at the time named Alfred Crozier asked to study the Glass-Owen Bill for Congress said this, The bill, Glass-Owen Bill, grants just what Wall Street and big banks for 25 years have been striving for, private instead of public control of currency. The Glass-Owen Bill and the Aldred Bill to establish in the United States a private central bank which robbed the government 
and the people all effective control over the public's money and vest in the banks exclusively the dangerous power to make money among the people's scarce or plenty. The Glass-Owen Bill or the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 established a private central bank, the Federal Reserve, and granted it monopoly control of the money supply in the United States. This bill, oddly enough, was snuck through the Senate on December 22, 1913, as most senators went home for Christmas recess and were ensured that they would not have a vote on this bill until after the recess concluded. Once the Federal Reserve Act was passed, the Federal Reserve was created. The 16th Amendment was later passed by Congress which allowed the individual income tax of citizens. U.S. Congressman Charles Lindbergh explained his thoughts on the Federal Reserve like this. This Federal Reserve Act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth. When the President Woodrow Wilson signs this bill, the invisible government of the monetary power will be legalized. The worst legislative crime of the ages is perpetrated by this banking and currency bill. The financial system has been turned over to the Federal Reserve Board. The board administers the finance system by authority of a purely profiteering group. This system is private, conducted for the sole purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits from the use of other people's money. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created, like two con men working a mark. Louis T. McFadden, the head of the banking committee from 1920 to 1931, said this about America after the creation of the Federal Reserve. When the Federal Reserve Act was passed, the people of the United States did not perceive that a world banking system was being set up here. A superstate controlled by international bankers and international industrialists acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. Every effort has been made by the Fed to conceal its power, but the truth is the Fed has usurped the government. President Woodrow Wilson, who once hailed J.P. Morgan for his saving of the economy in 1908, said this after signing the Federal Reserve Act. I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. The growth of the nation and all our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. Congressman Wright Patman explained America's situation perfectly in this quote. In the United States, we have in effect two governments. We have the duly constituted government, then we have an independent, uncontrolled, and uncoordinated government in the Federal Reserve System, operating the money powers, which are reserved to Congress by the Constitution. During the Roaring Twenties, the bankers made money plentiful, but once again started contracting the money supply. But in 1929, when the bankers started calling in their loans, overextended speculators betting on the then humming stock market had margin calls they could not cover with cash, so they had to start selling their assets or collateral. This huge level of non-stop margin calls that were all correlated by the big banks led to an unprecedented level of selling leading to the Depression. While in this depression, a bill passed to confiscate all gold from the American people 
and made it illegal to hold gold. Under executive order, it was passed as an idea to pool the resources of the people together in order to facilitate the regrowth of the economy. In reality, it was just a scheme to further corner the overall gold market. Nobel Peace Prize winning economist Milton Friedman said this about the Great Depression. The Federal Reserve, the privately owned U.S. Central Bank, definitely caused the Great Depression by contracting the amount of currency in circulation by one-third from 1929 to 1933. All the confiscated gold from this executive order was delivered to Fort Knox. By 1971, all the gold that was supposedly in Fort Knox had been siphoned away to other countries. Where did all this gold go? Money is not lost, but merely transferred. The money was transferred to European nations, like Germany, to help Germany rebuild after World War I. Congressman Louis T. McFadden said this about the scheme. After World War I, Germany fell into the hands of the German international bankers. Those bankers bought her and now they own her, lock, stock, and barrel. They have purchased her industries, they have mortgages on her soil, they control her production, they control all her public utilities. The international German bankers have subsidized the present government of Germany and they have also supplied every dollar of the money Adolf Hitler has used in his lavish campaign to build up a threat to the government of Bruning. When Bruning fails to obey the orders of the German international bankers, Hitler is brought forth to scare the Germans into submission. Through the Federal Reserve Board, over $30 billion of, dollars of American money has been pumped into Germany. You have all heard of the spending that has taken place in Germany. Modernistic dwellings, her great planetoriums, her gymnasiums, her swimming pools, her fine public highways, her perfect factories. All this was done on our money. All this was given to Germany through the Federal Reserve Board. The Federal Reserve Board has pumped so many billions of dollars into Germany that they dare not name the total. After World War II, 44 delegates from countries around the world came together to sign the Bretton Woods Agreement. This agreement stated that all countries would peg or attach a fixed exchange rate of their respective currencies to the U.S. dollar. But by now, America's money was far from backed by gold, and the power held by the Federal Reserve allowed for global manipulation as all countries throughout the world would now have to play by the rules the Federal Reserve set. This Bretton Woods system was used up until Nixon officially announced U.S. dollars could no longer be redeemed for gold as countries were starting to line up to test the dollar gold peg. However, even though the dollar was no longer backed by gold, it maintained its status as the world reserve currency by creating the petrodollar system. The petrodollar is basically the fact that all oil everywhere in the world, if legitimate, has to be purchased with U.S. dollars, which means China cannot buy oil for its nation using its own currency. It has to exchange its currency with the dollar first and then it can collect the oil. This petrodollar system tricked all other countries and meant that they were all still pegged or better put dependent on the US dollar even though it was backed by nothing. Nixon successfully sold the world on this fiat system in 1971 during a nationalized broadcast and handed the Federal Reserve the most powerful position a single group of people have ever obtained in the entirety of world history. How does the Fed create money out of nothing? It's a four-step process, but we first must understand bonds, which are just IOUs that promise a secure rate of interest. So with this knowledge, the Federal Open Market Committee approves the purchase of U.S. bonds. Then the bonds are purchased by the Fed. Then the Fed pays for the bonds with electronic credits. 
to the seller's bank. These credits are based on nothing and are just created by a keystroke. These credits go to banks which then they deposit as reserves. They can then loan out over 10 times the amount of their reserves to new borrowers all at interest. So when the Fed buys $10 million worth of bonds, they are really creating $100 million because the banks operate on fractional reserve banking. To reduce the money supply, the process is just reversed. The Fed sells bonds to the public and the money flows out of the purchaser's local bank and loans must be reduced by 10 times the amount of the sale. So a Fed sale of $1 million means $10 million less in the economy. With all that magic out of the way, Thomas Edison puts it simply, if the nation can issue a dollar bond, it can issue a dollar bill. The element that makes the bond good makes the bill good also. The difference between the bond and the bill is that the bond lets the money broker collect twice the amount of the bond and an additional 20%, whereas the currency, the honest sort provided by the Constitution, pays nobody but those who contribute in some useful way. It is absurd to say our country can issue bonds and cannot issue currency. Both are promises to pay, but one fattens the usurer and the other helps the people. America being fully under the grip of the money changers through the Federal Reserve, the next mission was to consolidate the power into a world government. After they established central bank dominance in national economies worldwide, the next step was to centralize the world economy through entities such as the World Bank, established in 1944, GATT in 1947, or the IMF in 1944. They could further consolidate their power by establishing centralized regional economies like the European Union in 1993 or NAFTA in 1994. Professor Carol Quigley of Georgetown University said this about the international markets. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert, by secret agreements arrived at infrequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. The growth of financial capitalism made possible a centralization of world economic control and use of this power for the direct benefit of financiers and the indirect injury of all other economic groups. President Kennedy said this in an eerie quote seven days before his assassination. There's a plot in this country to enslave every man, woman, and child. Before I leave this high and noble office, I intend to expose this plot. President Jackson echoed this message 100 years prior by stating, When you get in debt, you become a slave. We now all live in a world that is controlled by the expansion or contraction of money. These policies are set by the Fed and World Bank, which affect all other countries in the world. These powers lead to the boom and bust business cycle that were all started by the goldsmiths in medieval Europe and explains why bubbles can be prolonged and instantly pop like what happened recently in the 2000 tech bubble and the 2008 housing bubble. Today, this bubbling pop can even happen 
to countries as minimum reserve requirements in the interest of free markets are set. Those who cannot maintain deficits at a healthy rate will eventually not be able to borrow more money to pay off loans made to investors via bonds. This is why nations like Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Argentina have all recently experienced hyperinflationary death spirals as their national bank did not have enough collateral to borrow more money which made them default on their bonds which trickles down to the rest of the economy and causes social unrest as the people start to lose faith in the bills the government promises as well. Even some of the largest banks and some of the largest financial sectors of the world in 2008 experienced this hard wall of credit limitations which made them sell to cover losses which led to an entire market meltdown. However, this selling hurts Americans more than it hurts big banks as the selling leads to value of the assets held by individuals to decrease whereas the same is happening for the banks although they have a built-in safety net because as history has proven the government will bail out businesses that are quote too big to fail meaning that they will print money out of thin air to prop up a failing business as bad as unfair as this is we are lucky as most americans have never experienced hyperinflation but citizens that have to live through it know that individuals start losing value in not only assets but the currency they hold their value in as well eventually hyperinflation ravages a nation because the money that citizens thought they had accumulated throughout their life is gone in a matter of months or even weeks. Imagine being an Argentinian citizen who had saved the equivalent of $100,000 in pesos over a lifetime, but then the peso started to experience hyperinflation as the bonds Argentina was offering to pay for its national projects were not being paid off. Eventually, the national bank will have to borrow more and more, which means it has to print more and more to pay off this loan. They promised, but all this does is adds units to the system. In reality, reality it debases the entire value of everything denominated in that currency. Therefore, that $100,000 in pesos would really only be worth $50,000 in pesos because the peso experienced hyperinflation via the printing of money to pay off the national loans. You lost 50% of your purchasing power for no reason other than living in a physically and monetarily irresponsible nation, which eventually leads to the people losing faith in the overall government. This goes back to the kids and the fake some money scenario. If you, the money issuer, just gave this money to one child and made the other child work for it, the child working for the money will eventually get fed up with the unfair system and decide to just accept the punishment rather than doing all the work themselves. This is a breaking point that happens in societies that experience hyperinflation because the citizens cannot understand why they continue to stay poor even though they continue to work harder, which eventually makes them feel helpless and more or less a slave to the system. The system is controlled and operated by a small group of private shareholders who run a private business entity that all participate in an international oligopolist fashion in order to develop a monopoly-like power over the economic future of mankind. So what can we do about this corrupt system? Well, you can opt out. Since 2009, there has been an alternative to this privately controlled issuance of money called cryptocurrency. The most robust cryptocurrency is Bitcoin, developed by a group of developers headed by an anonymous individual named Satoshi Nakamoto. 
The idea was to develop a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized system that could be used to get around the centralized power over the issuance of money. Bitcoin, unlike fiat currencies and other cryptocurrencies, has a fixed supply, hard capped at 21 million coins. Unlike central banks and other privately controlled cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin can never produce another coin over 21 million regardless of economic conditions. This system runs on cryptography, which is used to verify transactions, which is basically very complex computer algorithms which node operators in the system send to miners. These miners are very powerful computers being directed or plugged into the Bitcoin network in order to help the network solve the cryptography based in every transaction to approve and validate each transaction. Once the code or block is solved, the nodes receive the data and collectively vote on whether the block is valid and matches all criteria of the system. If it does pass this vote, the block is added to the public blockchain ledger where anyone can see and view the transactions, almost like a virtual tally stick. Now there are many other cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin and even the possibility for a central bank digital currencies, which all miss the fundamental point about money issuance. Since the dawn of human civilization, we have had an intrinsic problem with the issuance of money to facilitate the transfer of goods and services within a society. Yes, we have advanced as a human collective, but how much have we held ourselves back over the last several hundred years by participating in an economic system that is controlled by a small group of profit seekers? Throughout mankind, call it greed, selfishness, arrogance, ignorance, or even outright evil manipulation, the group that have controlled this money issuance have all ultimately failed to serve the people. Even a gold standard misses the fundamental point as it would not fix the current situation as banks who have owned most of the gold would still collude and still practice fractional reserve banking leading to the many depressions already explained throughout American history. This inherently corrupt monopoly has been passed down from generation to generation and continues to affect the growth of other nations as as explained by Luis Ignacio de Silva, a prominent Brazilian politician in 1985. The Third World War has already started. It is a silent war, not for that reason any less sinister. The war is tearing down Brazil, Latin America, and practically all the Third World. Instead of soldiers dying, there are children. It is a war over the third world debt, one which has its main weapon interest, a weapon more deadly than the atom bomb, more shattering than a laser beam. While creating this film, El Salvador made incredible news, becoming the first nation in the world to legalize Bitcoin as its national currency. After failures in its own currency, El Salvador had been using the US dollar as its national currency. The bill that has now been passed enact Bitcoin as fully legal means of tenure in the country and is the first step in ridding El Salvador of the corrupt fiat system that has proven its lack of capacity to improve the lives of the many rather than just the ones who are closest to the money printer. It is likely that being the first nation to make this leap, El Salvador will become a financial hub for Bitcoiners to experiment and develop incredible products that will further enable easier access the world's first open decentralized monetary network.
This new analog technology of money will enable billions of people in emerging economies access to capital markets that have never before been able to invest or open a bank account. This will be demonstrated in the years to come from the examples that will pour out from El Salvador and other emerging markets, all stemming from this globally historic bill. The silent war over money issuance has led to a socialist capitalist society here in America and throughout the world, which no longer reflects the ideals that our founding fathers once had in mind for this great nation. Gary Allen explains this socialist capitalist society we currently reside in by stating, Socialism is not a share the wealth program, as the socialists would like you to believe, but a consolidate and control the wealth program for the insiders. This is the first time in human history where we can all live in a society that operates with a currency that is not controlled by any one human or group of humans, but rather a decentralized system that reveals all rules and allows the market to drive itself rather than to be the backseat passenger. The participants of society will ultimately decide which money they will use. But I will leave you with this. A truly free capitalist society cannot run on a system in which the base layer is a monopoly. To fix this, there is only one answer, and individuals around the world are starting to comprehend the answer. The future of money will no doubt experience a continuing evolution. But in which direction, ultimately, for the first time in human history, it's up to the people.